This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the latest involving the global coronavirus pandemic. One of the questions going around is, are we in the first wave or the second? What do we expect going forward? Some epidemiologists say it's uh, still the first wave. We're not done with it yet. And they are predicting a second one for the fall and the winter. Will that be worse than the first go-round? The first warning, you might be getting sick, could just come from your high-tech Watch. That sounds interesting. Yeah, we'll talk about that one. Public yeah. health has moved my, to the... My watch can barely tell time, let alone <laughs> if I'm sick. you got to okay. change the battery. Yeah. Public health has moved to the uh, forefront of public consciousness since the start of all this, of course. We'll get into how this could be a major positive for our long-term health as we move forward. Remember when we seem to say that a lot because <laughs> so much has changed in the past six months, including going to restaurants, we will look into how the restaurant industry is adapting. Let's get back to a possible winter wave of infections. Dr. Ailey Klein is professor of emergency medicine at Johns Hopkins University, fellow at the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics, and Policy. So, doctor, what do the next few months ahead look like to you? You know, unfortunately, if you look at every respiratory virus uh, that we have uh, and seen, um, they all tend to go up in the winter. Um, and that tends to start when schools open in the early fall. You sort of start to see infections increasing, and then they really start to pick up in October, November, and then really peak in December. Um, but when you have a pandemic and more people are susceptible, that tends to be even faster. So, you know, unfortunately, that with given the large number of people who are probably still uh, susceptible to the disease, ex- we expect that there's probably going to be increases starting over the next several weeks. And is is what is going to be driving that uh, other than, because not all the schools, of course, are open, but is it what, that, that people are getting more uh, fatigued wearing masks, they're, they're starting to kind of drop their guard, and, and they're associating more and more with other people? Is that what's going to drive it? No, well, so, I, I mean, the, the question is really around respiratory viruses. There's two things that drive transmission. One is behavior. So people do tend to change their behaviors in the fall, even when schools are not opening, you know, you, anecdotally, there's a lot of pods, uh, learning pods, whatever you want to call them, where kids are getting together and, and learning and, and mixing in, in those areas. Um, businesses are opening in some places, um, you know, not everywhere, um, but, but there, is den- there does tend to be some fatigue with, with the whole lockdowns and people are starting to congregate more. But the other thing that seems to happen, which is not just related to behavior is, is, is the weather does change, right? And that, and that does change some behaviors. More things tend to happen inside. It's, you know, it's harder to be outside when it's colder. I know you guys are in California, but here when it gets colder, it gets a lot colder, um, and it's harder to be outside. But also when it gets colder, that, that turns the air drier, um, and people turn on their heat. That makes the inside even, even more dry. And those things tend to make you... I, presumably more susceptible to getting infected and makes the disease more readily transmissible. And that's one of the reasons why we seem to see increases related to all respiratory viruses in the, in the fall. So we see an uptick in cases. Do you expect to see an uptick in people losing their lives? We're getting better at treating, you know, in the ICU, serious complications. If you do go to the hospital, you're more likely to come out than you were at the beginning of this. Right. Well, 
I mean, again, you know, everything we've been doing to try to flatten the curve has been to, you know, give time to uh, develop a vaccine, develop more and develop more therapies that make it easier for people to survive and make it, um, you know, possible that, you know, we now have some treatments that do actually work um, and doctors have become better at managing this. But again, one of the problems is that if you have lar- a large number of people infected at the same time, that it puts a real strain on the healthcare system, right? And so some of the reasons that people died early in the, this disease is because there was not uh, available hospital beds or the hospitals were overcrowded. And so those are some of the things that we are, are certainly worried about. Dr. Ailey Klein, Professor of Emergency Medicine, Johns Hopkins University, Fellow at the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics, and Policy. Do you have um, a Fitbit or some other kind of, you know, one of those high-tech watches that keeps track of your exercise workouts, calories burned, that kind of stuff, you know? It's pretty interesting how so much data a watch can record and also give back to you. Now, scientists think they could be accurate devices to let us all know if we're getting sick with the coronavirus. Dr. Steven Steinhubel, Director of Digital Medicine, Scripps Research Translational Institute. So, Doctor, what do you think about these watches uh, watching us and then telling us that, hey, maybe something's off? It's still early, but it's, it's very exciting and it looks very promising. Now, so far, there have been five early publications, all what we call preprints of uh, the potential, some coming from device manufacturers like Fitbit and Whoop, um, some coming from academic centers, ourselves at Scripps, as well as our colleagues at Stanford and other organizations. All of it looks promising, and it's all based on the idea that um, that it, we each have our own unique individual um, physiologic state. Um, so when we're normal, when we're healthy, when we don't have an infection, our resting heart rate is unique to us. So that, let's say that might be 64 or 54 when you're at rest. And, and that a change in that, so uh, if your heart resting heart rate goes up to 70 or 72, um, that may be abnormal for you. And as, but if you go to a doctor's office, a heart rate of 72 is totally fine. That's, um, and so what we believe, and, and at least the preliminary data suggests that things like what your normal resting heart rate is, what your normal respiratory rate is, changes as um, at least some people develop COVID infection, and that by being able to detect that early, we can um, identify people who um, are sick well before they have a fever or maybe have any other symptoms. But it, it isn't particularly specific, right? So couldn't it indicate a host of all kinds of things that might be going wrong with you? Why, why would you suspect it's COVID? Yeah, that's a great question, and and you're absolutely right. So the, this is kind of a brand new field of this kind of what we call the digital vital sign of your unique changes in respiratory rate and heart rate, and there's a lot to learn. Um, what we've done so far is look at a combination of changes in, in your vital signs, your sleep, your activity, your heart rate, and the combination of symptoms, and have found that um, that uh, the symptoms plus the wearable data in increases the likelihood of you having COVID infection versus something else like influenza or maybe just something else like you had a bad night's sleep or you had an asthma exacerbation or things. But these are the things that we really have to learn um, as to uh, how how specific we can get. And it might be a combination because COVID tends to affect the respiratory system. It might be a combination of heart rate and respiratory rate 
um, or, um, you know, something completely different, or we may not ever get to be able to the point where we can specifically say you have COVID, but we might get to the point where you say you have some kind of infection and you should get tested or you should isolate until you get tested. Who watches my graph day to day, or is it me that goes in there and tries to interpret all this? Because I don't know if you can rely on me to do that, Doc. Yeah. So um, uh, now that right now it is just you, but it's incumbent upon us, the the manufa- the, the people who are de- we're developing a, what we want to develop as a user friendly platform. So that when you look at it, so for example, we don't have it yet, but we're developing a graph that says, okay, we can predict what your resting heart rate should be because everybody, like I mentioned, has a unique one to them, but also has unique variations in that um, resting heart. So we can graph that. And then we can say, and this is what we predict it should be. This is what it is. If you're outside of that, and then we're built in asking questions. Do you have anything else to suggest a fever? Do you have anything else to, that might explain why your heart rate is, is above normal? And if we can't find any other clear explanation, um, then we will suggest that um, you should pursue testing. And we're trying to put in within the app things like, and here are the testing centers close to you. Why do I think that some doctors are going to be absolutely horrified by this? I I mean, as it is, a lot of them get upset when their patients come in having quoting, you know, quoting Dr. Google saying that, you (laughs) know, I never search a symptom on Google. Right, right. You know, I'm sure I've got this, this. And now they're going to come in and say, doctor, I'm sick. The doctor is going to go, why do you think you're sick? And they're going to go, "Uh, my aura smart ring says so. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And we have to get better than that. I mean, uh, healthcare is a little bit of a mess now. And terms of, you know, we don't have the ability, doctors don't have the time or the ability to digest all the information that these wearable sensors allow, um, and then making sense uh, of that. So it's incumbent upon the developers as, and we're hoping through our research to be able to inform that, how do we make this as valuable as possible to, and, and as accurate as possible to the wearer? And um, and if we can show that, and we show that in an evidence-based way, and we publish that, then doctors know, just like they know that, um, you know, getting an EKG that shows something abnormal is a is a reason to, you know, act upon that. That having a an alert from your wearable data is something that needs to be acted upon too. So what would you add to any of these devices if you've got a watch or a Fitbit? It's a fitness tracker. How do you make it a sickness tracker? Is there one other feature that you see some company putting in someday that would help you guys out, even if it's down the line? Well, um, so I think that what's so exciting about this field is how quickly it's changing. And we know that um, as we get better at respiratory rate, um, that's helpful in there. There are some devices, one just approved by the FDA, that continuously measures blood pressure. Um, and um, and blood pressure and changes and subtle changes in that might be especially valuable too. As we get better at measuring heart rate, we can also measure heart rate variability, which might be an early signal. So I know that's kind of a long non-answer. There's just so much to explore that we think the more unique personalized characteristics we can identify, the more refined we can get um, showing when somebody has deviated from their normal yeah i i think we heard a dog in the background before and 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 i think there yeah. aren't they training dogs to to uh to find uh, patients who have covid so so what would be better a a smart ring or a beagle oh man i'd take a beagle um <laughs> and, but but 
But I think you bring up a great point, and there are a lot of people working on like an artificial dog. So the dog's nose is a million times more sensitive than ours. And there have been really good studies of dogs sniffing colon cancer out from people's breath um, and different cancers. And so there are a lot of really fascinating work on that, and that might be a future um, diagnostic test where um, somebody just has to, if they're not feeling well, or even if not, you know, you breathe into a, um, into a device and it can screen you for cancer and screen mm. you for infections. And, and that's another really exciting way these personal health monitoring devices are going. Dr. Stephen Steinhubel, Director, Digital Medicine, Scripps Research Translational Institute. Doctor, thanks. Before the pandemic started, not many people thought about their local public health departments or what exactly they do, but that's now changed, and that might be for the better. New poll by Public Opinion Strategies shows people are now recognizing the importance of strong public health departments. Dr. Brian Castrucci is president of the DeBeaumont Foundation, which sponsored the survey, and he talks to KYW's Matt Leon about how this can boost public health departments moving forward. So what this poll shows us is that seven out of every 10 Americans understands that local health departments are important for us to achieve good community health. And it's not any one group, it's kind of everyone said that public health departments are important. You say it was everyone. Were there certain demographics that you really saw the the needle shift from one direction to the other? Absolutely. Uh, I think the, the most encouraging finding for me was Republicans in 2018, about 30% said that local health departments were important for community health. In 2020, that's now 60%. So this kind of narrative that there's one group that um, you know are really opposed to masks and don't like governmental public health, that's a really small but vocal minority. And, and we need to leverage the fact that most Americans, Republican and Democrat, uh, they really believe in local public health, and, and we need to leverage that for better funding and, and really to strengthen our, our industry. That was kind of my next question. Could this kind of be an inflection point for public health that they can, obviously, we're in the middle of the pandemic. You see this type of support. Can we see this turned into uh, more funding, becoming more visual, stuff like that? Every year in this country, we spend $700 billion on defense. And that's to protect us from foreign influence and foreign invasion. But we've lost 180,000 American lives and 14 million people are out of work, not because of a foreign invader, but because of a virus. Could you ever imagine sending soldiers to the front line of a battle without the tools that they need to win? But that's what we've done to local governmental public health. We have cut them every year and, and when we needed them most, they didn't have the resources to fight as well as they should have or wanted to. We talk about taking advantage of this support in this moment. I think one of the things that, I don't know if works against, but I'll use that term, works against public health is the more effective it is, the more invisible it tends to be. People forget, people take for granted, well, we don't need this because we don't have any problems. Well, you don't have any problems because it's working like it's supposed to be. So... How much does that work against it, the, the fact that the, the more effective it is, the less you see it? That Clearly, you've done your research because that is the biggest challenge to public health, right? When, when someone puts out a fire, you can see the fire. When there's an invading force coming over the hill, you see the soldiers. You're absolutely right. When public health works, um, we don't get to see it, right? It, it's preventing things from happening. 
Um, but I don't I, I've never been um, in a place that I've needed to have the police or I've never been in a place that I've needed to have the fire department come to my home. So but I still value them. And it's because we we acculturate our our communities to understanding what those roles are. I mean, what do your kids play? They play teacher. They play, you know, fire chief. They don't play epidemiologist. What did did this poll tell us anything beyond just stronger support for public health as you kind of dig down and look across tabs were there other things you can take away from this well this poll also showed us that it wasn't just infectious disease response it was across the board support for public health environmental health maternal child health chronic disease support and six out of ten americans said that they were willing to pay more taxes to support their local health departments and so while while i'm not saying we have to increase taxes tomorrow but what i am saying this is a major call to action for every elected official and every candidate that the 2020 election, which is 60 days away, is is and should be an election about health. What are some things you would like to see? What are some things if there are local government officials listening to this and they agree? And what would be some things that that most municipalities, most cities could could look at and, and implement and make everybody safer and better? Well, you are so fortunate in Philadelphia to have an amazing local health department run by Dr. Farley, who, who I'm fortunate to know, and he is beyond brilliant. We need to build upon the, the greatness that is in Philly already with the right policies that help to create a city where everyone has a chance to be healthy. And right now we have a pandemic crisis wrapped in an unemployment crisis wrapped in a hunger crisis, wrapped in a housing crisis. And, and we need to now have a, a thoughtful strategic plan about health. And what I want local officials to do is realize that health is the foundation of our community. And when it fails, almost nothing else works. And so we need to strategically prioritize the health of our communities. And that's what local officials need to do, federal and state, they need to fund public health. They need to get money into the hands of your local health department to better support the health of all Philadelphians. Going out to eat is much different now if you're even able to go out to eat at all in your area. Some places offer limited indoor seating, while others only let you dine outside, but gone are the days of those crowded restaurants. Survey sponsored by the guest experience platform Seven Rooms identifies what restaurant customers are looking for in the pandemic. WBBM's Rob Hart talks to Doug Roth, founder and president of Playground Hospitality, about the survey and how the restaurants can make the experience more comfortable for everybody. I think it's difficult actually to accommodate everyone's needs at this point. And I think that what you need to do is really sort of concentrate uh, on specific areas. Uh, and that would mean, for instance, carry out delivery uh, and be really honed in on that. Uh, because at this juncture, uh, you do have quite a few fears. You were mentioning the four different types of individuals. And uh, one is the pickup patron, for instance. And the pickup patron, only 25% of uh, individuals at this point are comfortable picking up food. Uh, hopefully that will increase. Uh, what's even more concerning is how many people are really interested in sitting indoors. Um, at this point, 
only 27% are interested in sitting inside of a restaurant. So you, you really have to be able to sort of pick and choose at this juncture and uh, figure out really the best way to maximize your profitability. And there, there, and are, two, the there, to do. there are two categories of diners, the safety-savvy safety savvy consumer and the <laughs> yeah, right. tech-conscious contactless diner. And the safety-savvy consumer is one who wants the, you know, the barriers between tables and, you know, real, uh, a, a real serious rearrangement of the uh, physical facilities uh, to make sure that uh, social distancing and, 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 every, and the in, indoor dining experience is as safe as possible. Some restaurants have tried that uh, or done the best they could. And then the contactless diner, they want everything to be done online ahead of time so you're not touching anything or hanging around before your seating experience. Right. And, and both of those can get costly. Uh, you were talking about the safety-savvy guest. Well, in addition to that, they want sanitizers. They want the food to be covered. And one thing that uh, is very important now, uh, more than anything for, for most guests, is the filtration system. Hey, do you have HEPA filters? And if so, when were they put in? And because I think that the concern is, is that most restaurants are covering the, the area of, con- of contact and uh, are not as concerned about contracting the virus that way, but more through um, the air particles. And so in that sort of context, like flying, uh, that you want to be able to feel that they are doing everything possible to filter the air. And, and that, again, can get very expensive. Well, thanks for joining us, Doug Roth, founder and president of Playground Hospitality based in Chicago. Remember when cleaning products were flying off the shelves when the pandemic started? It was hard to find things like wipes and hand sanitizer. People suddenly became obsessed with disinfecting everything, including their their groceries. No one wanted to catch the virus after touching a box of cereal or a bag of oranges. But it turns out, turns out all that cleaning might have been just one big waste of time. The CDC website now says because of the poor survivability of the coronavirus on surfaces, there's likely a very low risk of spread from food products or packaging. Now, it goes on to say that no cases of COVID-19 have been linked to people touching food or food packaging and then touching their faces. But they, for months and months, isn't wasn't that the thing about don't touch your eyes, don't touch your nose, don't touch your face, yeah. don't don't touch your ears. You still probably shouldn't touch your eyes though, because you know doorknobs and stuff. Yeah, but you can but... keep the Mister Clean away from Toucan Sam. You, know? <laughs> you don't need to clean off the cereal box. <laughs> All right, this has been. Uh... Oh, yes. You you were supposed to clean off the cereal box. <laughs> oh. Not individually <laughs> brush the Cheerios. <laughs> no, no, no wonder why it took so long. <laughs> It took him six hours yeah. to eat. Wow. Uh, Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, find us there.